Psalm 75 is the psalm of the month. We sing that song. I draw attention particularly to verse 2 in light of our scripture reading and message this morning. It says, You say, I set the time, I judge with even hand. When earth and all its people quake, I make its pillars stand. And it is in that truth that we turn to our passage today. If you would turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Today, both in the morning message and in the evening, we will be looking at the, this text. We're going to go deep into James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Today, we will read verses 7 through 12, and this morning, focus on verses 7 through 9. This is one textual unit, as you're turning there, just a couple words of explanation. Verses 1 through 12 is one unit. And we have taken it in three messages, or we will tonight have the third message on it. And the reason we go so in-depth into this is because of the truth that James is trying to show the people, and that is to live in light of Christ's coming. We saw that last time in the first six verses, and the knowledge of Christ's coming gives to us a patience in in, in bearing with the sins of others. We'll see that today as well. But last time, the the emphasis on those first six verses is on the ungodly, is on the judgment coming. And now in verses 7 through 12, which we will look at today, the emphasis shifts onto the people of God and how they are to then apply this truth to their life. Before we read verses 7 through 12, let's ask for God's blessing. Father in heaven, we pray as we open your word that we would hear it and know it, that we would respond to it in obedience. We are aware of your great power in your word. Your word provides us with examples where there was a valley of bones that were dry, and yet by the power of your spoken word and the spirit in it, these bones lived again. That life came to what was dry and dead. And this is our prayer for our own hearts, which are not dry and dead for those in Christ. In Christ, we know we've been given hearts that are not of stone, but hearts that are of flesh that beat and live. And so we pray that you would open those up and speak to us through it, that we would learn the center of this text and the message and the application of it to be patient to live that patience before you. We ask this in the name of our dear Savior. Amen. We'll begin in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Sends reading of our Lord God. We will again be focusing on verses 7 
or 9 this morning. What does it mean to hear your Lord is at hand, that his coming is near, that he stands at the door? This type of understanding is in this text. It begins in verse 7, Be patient of her brothers until the coming of the Lord. That verse supplies when our patience, in effect, can end. When we are patient too, there's a goal, there's a set line there. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then he gives examples of patience. And he talks about the judge is there. And so we can apply it and say, there he is, Christ stands at the door. And what does that truth mean? How does that matter? How does that affect our lives. I'm sure many of us have experienced the situation when you were talking about a certain individual, you were in a room and the door was closed, and you were talking about a certain individual, and then all of a sudden the, the door opens and there's that individual there, and that automatically makes you think, well, wait, what were we saying? Was, was there something bad that was said? Were we being honest? If they heard that, would that have been, would that have been harmful to them? We've, we've experienced that, that all of a sudden the knowledge of the presence of someone which we didn't, didn't necessarily see, and then all of a sudden knew they were there, that affected us. It affected us to know that that person may have heard. And so I want us to think of it in this way, and I want this illustration and example to sort of guide us through this text. Think of yourselves as children, as children in a room. There you are. You can think of almost like in, you're in a nursery and the door is closed. Now, the only part of this example that you might have to use a little bit more imagination to is we're children, but we also have something of an adult's understanding. But there we are. We're, we're in the nursery. We're playing with other children. Well, what would the knowledge that our mother or father is right outside that door do for us? How would that change our life, our thinking, our conduct as kids in the nursery, as those playing with others, as those living our life in that room? Would it not give to us peace? Would it not, as children, give to us peace to know that our parent was right there? That they're, they're close in proximity. Uh, right on the other side of the door, would that to know that we were not alone, would we not feel comforted by that? That we wouldn't feel abandoned there, right there? Well, this is how our text should be applied. Jesus is at the door. We would also have patience, would we not? Patience in difficulty as children playing in the room, perhaps in this nursery, as sometimes happens, you know, we are all sinful and we begin to fight and there are others who may mistreat you, take the toys, take what's not yours, bully you, speak against you, whatever it might be. But would this not give us patience in the suffering, patience in that, in that situation, knowing that our parent is right there and at any moment they'll open the door and walk in. They hear everything. They know what's going on. Would that not allow us to, to sit, to be patient? Our parent is at hand. Well, this is how we should apply our text. Would we not also be spurred on to obedience? This is sort of the other side of that same coin. Maybe we're being mistreated and we're patient in the mistreatment, knowing that our, our parent is there. But we would also then be obedient, would we not? 
to know that our parent can see everything, can hear everything, and so we would want to obey and not just obey and, and in, a, in a sort of, yeah, we're doing well, we're, we're not being as bad as we could. We would want to be exemplary. We would, we would want to please our parent. And so we would share with others. We would be obedient. We would, not, we would not be those to fight. We would not be those to speak against another. We would then be patient, even in obedience. We would want to strive so that when our parent opens the door, we would see a smile on their face and not a frown. That's how we live in this life. That's what the knowledge of Christ being near and his coming be at hand does, and that's what James does. He takes that truth and he applies it to their context and situation. In the first six verses, which we looked at last time, it was about judgment. It was about judgment of those who mistreat God's people. And in that, we saw we can gain strength knowing that there would be justice and things would be put to right. Here, in these verses, James takes the, the knowledge and wants it to be made concrete. He wants the knowledge to produce an action in ourselves, to produce a mindset, and that mindset is patience. That's the word that governs this entire section. It really governs all of verses 1 through 12. Be patient because the Lord is coming. That's really the main point of those verses. Christ's coming ought to cause us to be patient. We know that he stands at the door. And so the context shifts from just a knowledge of his coming and a knowledge of what he will do to the ungodly, to the, to the wicked rich, as we saw last time. And he wants us now, his people, to enact this patience, to bring it about. And so governing all these verses, you ought to be patient because of Christ's coming. But specifically on verses 7 to 9, we see the patience that Christ's coming produces is in our outlook and in our relationships. Those are our two points this morning. Patience in life's difficulties, or that's really a patient outlook. An outlook, you know, is how you see your life. It's an attitude towards your life. It's, it's the way in which you conduct your life. It's, it's the way, it's glasses by which you see the world around you. It's your outlook, and we want a patient outlook, is what James says. And in verse 9, we see the patience we are to have to one another. So that's patience in our relationships. So you see here, in these verses, a patient outlook, patience with our brothers and sisters, those around us. So first, patience in life's difficulties and in our outlook. It is said that patience is a virtue. Unfortunately, it's a virtue that is very difficult to obtain, one that I doubt any of us here would say that we're good at, that we would be brazen enough to say, yeah, I, I have all I need in patience. I'm such a patient person. I don't need more of it. No, we, we would say, yes, even the most patient among us are those who stand to learn and have more patience because it's difficult. Patience is hard. We saw in the first six verses of this chapter what patience might mean. It might mean extortion. It might mean that we are even put to death and murdered. It's hard to be patient. And James illustrates this even more in our text. He goes further for the patience we are to have to live. And so he gives the example of a farmer waiting for his crop. He says that in the text. You can see... See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. The agricultural cycle in Palestine in the ancient day was governed by early and late rains. They marked the whole cycle, and it was those rains that were key to bring about the fruit of the crop. 
And so it was the farmer's patience that was needed to, to wait until these rains came. Rains that he had no control over. It was all in God's control to bring about. It was these rains that would give the fruit, and it requires patience. And American farmers know that just as well, that it is not their own power that can bring about rains, and it is the power of God to bring about the nourishment that these, this crop needs to bring about the seed. Seeds are a great example of it because you can't see it. You can't see the, the production of it. It takes a long time until they sprout. And then even after they sprout, it takes more time to see the fruit and the crop produce. It takes patience, and what James is saying, our lives, living in light of Christ's coming, is the same thing. There is a crop. We await its production. You can't fully see it yet, but we, we wait in patience. When James talks about the early and late rains, the, the, generally the way that expression is used in God's word is not just simply a hope, like we hope the early and late rains will come. Usually that term is associated with God's providence. Something of a structure that God is faithful in that he brings the early and late rains, that these things come, and they come by God's own faithfulness. So it's less of the idea like we cross our fingers and hope, will the rains come? We don't know, let's hope. And more of the confident trust, just as God brings these early and late rains, so the farmer will be patient. And so should we. Depends, the crop depends on this. The production of the crop isn't in doubt here. We don't await that crop in doubt. The farmer trusts. The farmer is patient. This is why verse 8 says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That phrase, the coming of the Lord is at hand, means the coming of the Lord is near. It's right there. It's near. He is near. Part of patience is not needing the answer. Part of patience is not needing the, the proof of the crop at every moment. It takes time. And so in farming, there's a huge element of trust. A huge element of trust that it will produce, that God will provide. And I was thinking of this in my own life, a very simple illustration of this. And this is as close as I get to farming. The farmers are going to scoff at this. We have a little herb garden in our house and it's a it's a aeroponics garden i believe where it's just it sits in water you have seed pods that sit in water and the water will run and i have a little light to blink when the water's out and i have a little light to blink to tell me to put more the the, the bottle is labeled plant food and everyone could probably laugh at that it's liquid it's it's liquid to to feed it and fertilize it and so everything's handled you, you even have those indicating lights, and you take these seed pods, and there's fiber, and you can't see the, 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 the seed in it. It's just contained in this pod, and you put it in the, the garden, and it will produce. That's, that's the goal. Well, we, we, I did that. I put it in there, and, and everything else was producing. You know, the basil comes up, the thyme comes up, but what wasn't coming up was the mint. And it says, right on the pot, oh, it should sprout in 6 to 12 days. And I was waiting. I was like, all right, this might take some time. And then we got to the 12 days. And I was like, I don't see anything. And then we got past that, and, and it was like, where, where's the sprout? This is a defective pot, is what I thought. The seed's not there. And so right before I was about to call the, the company and say, I, I need a new pot, there was no seed in this one, or it was defective, well, then it sprouted. 
You see, right before I would have acted on, on impatience and called and changed it and would not have waited for that production, I would have, would have taken away what was actually a perfectly good seed pod. Now, in this illustration, on, on one hand, that makes sense. On one hand, it makes sense because what you're dealing with is a company. Maybe they forgot to put the plant there. Maybe it was defective. And that gives us a, a chance to legitimize it and say, well, we have to be impatient at times. But the reality is, and the whole point of this example, is that God doesn't produce, he doesn't plant defective pods. He doesn't use the seeds that won't bring about the crop. He doesn't bring a, a less amount of nourishment and so the crop won't grow. No, this is the perfect farmer. This is the one who knows exactly what he's doing, and, and that's the attitude James wants his congregation to have. Trust in him. Trust in his provision. And that trust is supposed to produce something. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, To establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. This has the idea to strengthen your heart. To make firm your heart. Strengthen your heart so that you can stand. What is the source of the strength for our hearts? The fact that the Lord is at hand. That's James' point. How do you strengthen your heart and establish it? How do you remain patient? It's the way we began the service with that illustration. The Lord is standing at the door and his hand is on the knob. Do you live in light of that truth? In that trust? What does it mean that the Lord is near? Does it mean that he's near to us presently, physically, and in space? Does it just mean that his coming is close at hand when he will come? Honestly, it's difficult to say because the word James uses in the original text can imply both a physical presence or nearness, or a nearness in time as if it will soon to happen. I don't believe that we can actually separate either of these from James' intent. Not that God or Christ is present here us physically, in physical substance, his body is in heaven, but the idea that his presence is with us, that he is with us in spirit, that he's with us in his spirit. And we know that he is. The Holy Spirit dwells with us as Jesus' own comforter that he sends to his people. He is near to us in space. He is present with us. And so in that analogy, in that illustration, he's at the door. He's right beside us. But his nearness and at hand is also true of his coming. And that's the idea. His hand is on the knob, and he's ready to turn it, and he's walking in. It's the imminence of his coming. We talked a bit about this last time. We need to be patient knowing that his presence, his coming, is near at hand. It's right here. And it's hard for us to live that way because we seem to experience a delay. We seem to feel as if, well, his coming, which was foretold to be short in the Bible, right? That's the way it seems to indicate it should have happened already. Why are all these years going by and his coming isn't here? And most of us have probably given up hope that we would even see that in our lifetime. We don't know when Christ's coming will be, and it's, that's true. But how then do we deal with that? Because that affects our patience. That affects, well, is he really there? Is he really nigh? Is he really at the door? Peter answers this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He gives us reasons to explain what is happening. 
First, his first reason to say in, in this supposed delay in God's coming is that God is not slow in keeping his promise, but is himself patient. And so Peter's point is to say that there isn't just this delay here. It's not as if the family van is packed and the vacation's ready to go, but it keeps getting pushed back because so-and-so forgot their, their bag or the, the, the father forgot to get gas and it keeps getting pushed back and delayed. That's not what hap- is, is happening here. Rather, the father in heaven is himself patient. And so what we see is, see is not a delay in God's coming. What we see is his own patience to carry out his will. That's the first thing Peter says. The second thing is that his time scale and our time scale aren't the same. Because for the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. That's just a poetic description. That's not giving us a mechanical, this is how God tells time, and we do. It's a poetic way of saying our times are not the same. God is eternal, and his eternality means that time to him is not the same way as we view, our finite minds view time. And so for God to speak that his coming is near in an eternal sense, as he who judges eternality in that way, who is even above it and beyond it, that's not wrong for him to speak in that way. The third reason is what we call a delay is, in fact, God bringing in his people. It's his patience expressed in the fact that the gospel's going out, and that's where we see this sort of delay in his coming isn't a delay. Jesus had taught about the kingdom and that the kingdom's dawn was like a seed, a mustard seed that is planted. A seed, though, takes time to grow. The kingdom of God would take time to germinate and spread and mature and produce this tree that the nations could come as birds and sit in its boughs and its limbs. That implies that there would be some time. Not everything God's word indicates that he would come right away in our finite understanding. The nearness of God and his imminence is that he does stand and is ready to open the door that could occur at any moment. Imminence means the state or fact of being about to happen. And we can say that about Christ's coming. It's the fact that it is about to happen. I said this last time. When you, when you look at all of history in the context of redemption and what God does, the next thing to happen is his coming. And so it is near. What does that mean? Okay, we just established the biblical teaching, and James is taking that truth and saying, how does that affect your life? Be patient. Patient in your outlook. Patient in obedience. Nothing can hurry the early and the late rains. Nothing can speed up the coming of the Lord, but his day is near, and with each passing moment, it gets that much closer. To be patient and establish your hearts is what James says. In the difficulties of life, you have to ask yourself, are you being patient? Are you living in patience? Are you living with that understanding? Or are you living in complete, just, you're not even thinking about the coming of the Lord at all, complete rejection of it in a sense. That doesn't matter. I think functionally that's the way we often do live our lives. We just are going to go about it and we're going to walk through this earth. We're going to walk along the way. And whether he comes, great. That's that's not right. That's not the way we're supposed to live. Well, if it comes in our lifetime, that's great. But until then, just business as usual. No. 
You take the truth and you live in light of that. It gives you strength. What else is going to strengthen you? What else is going to give you patience if not that? We're in that room. We're in that nursery. We are these kids. If we don't have the understanding and the thought always before us, he's at the door. Then why wouldn't we be those to grow impatient and to be disobedient and to live without peace? We have to always place before us the proximity of our Lord, not only in his presence with us in his spirit as he is present in all places, but also the nearness of his coming, and that's James' point, a patient outlook. Well, the second point is patience with each other. This just takes the practicality of the previous verses and makes it all that much more concrete in verse 9. James' point is because they are in a time of suffering and trial, because they're the church militant, because they're in a place that needs patience, and they undergo great, great stress and hardship, it is in those times we are prone to lash out at others around us. It is when the pressure and the heat of life is applied that we will grow impatient and we will grow impatient with each other. So the patience that James would have us have in relation to the day of Christ's coming is directly applied to the patience we have to, the, uh, to each other around us because the day of Christ's coming is also a day of judgment. Where am I getting at with that? This is the example of us in that room and our obedience. This is where James is applying that because of the coming of Christ, the one who stands at the door with his hand on the knob, ready to turn it at any moment, is also the judge. And we see that with our parents, and that's why that illustration works. They are the authority over us as our parent. They have the right to judge. They will come in, and if our behavior and if our, our words was despicable and sinful, their coming isn't one that's pleasant. Their coming is one to bring about a change. And so that knowledge of Christ's proximity and his coming ought to make us live in patience with each other. And this fits James' whole point. They're in a context of suffering. And in a context of suffering, we lash out at those around us. We are impatient towards each other. This gives us quite a challenge because it means if we are not patient with each other, then we are not living with the nearness of Christ in mind. We think impatience with each other, we think lashing out in anger, we think being irritable and all these things are quite minor. What James reveals is it actually means you live without a thought of the proximity of your Savior both in space and time. You're not living in light of that, and that's causing you to lash out at your loved ones, to lash out at your family, and you justify it. What else would we do? Who would judge me for lashing out when I have this problem? And we're so quick to accept that. We are so quick to say, yeah, you know what, that's right. Oh, oh, he's just burdened at work, or oh, she just has these difficult health issues, or oh, they're just in a difficult time, and that's why they've been nasty to everyone, and that's okay. And the only reason we're willing to accept that is because that's exactly what we would do in the same situation. That's not living in light of Christ's coming. That's not acceptable for a Christian. That's James' point. 
but gives you the right to treat those around you in that way, with impatience. Like, you don't have any time for them. You don't have any time for what they're doing. All that matters is your timetable when the judge is standing at the door with his hand on the knob and has already told you his coming is near. See, then we're the spoiled kid. And we need to be rebuked. We seek to justify it all the time. How quick does our impatience spark grumbling and complaining? That's just another side of what impatience is, grumbling and complaining. It's not just all anger. Sometimes it's silence towards others. I don't have time for you. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to ignore you. That's impatience. Not living with the coming of Christ in mind. Christ's coming produces patience in our outlook and our relationships, or it ought to. That's Jane's call. That hurts. It hurts to think of all these things and to realize we don't live with the knowledge of Christ and his coming in our minds. We are like the spoiled kids or a spoiled child at an airport. Here's another example. Think of your family. You're going with your family on an amazing trip, a dream vacation. And and what I mean by that in this example is really heaven itself. That's really what I'm corresponding this to. But in in this illustration, there you go. You're at the airport. You're ready to go on a trip beyond anything. The dream destination, wherever that would be. And you have your whole family there. And you're in the terminal awaiting the flight. And what you're doing is you're sitting there and you're complaining about everything. The seat's too hard. It's not comfortable. I'm hungry. I want to go. Tommy's hitting me. And, and Sally was mean to me. And you sit there and you, all you're doing is grumbling and complaining. You're complaining about your father who's graciously taking you on the trip. You're complaining about your siblings who are the ones going with you on the trip. And any observer would stand there and think, this child doesn't want to go at all. Or they'd think, that child doesn't deserve to go at all. That's so often us. We have, pro- we have been promised the dream vacation and the dream trip. And James is saying, even in our text, you are at the airport. You are sitting at the gate. And the plane is there, and it's unloaded. And you're ready to walk down the gangway and board. What are you doing? Complaining and grumbling, being impatient. how practical the gospel is. Because that's what it is. It's the gospel applied to our life. It's the good news that we are saved in Christ. It's the good news that we are justified in Him. It's that good news applied to the way we live, the outlook we take, the way we treat each other. Live with patience. James is addressing those who've allowed their circumstances to mark their poor behavior to their brothers and sisters, and James is calling for the children of God to be patient. To sit there, yes, it's hard. Yes, the seat might be hard. Yes, Tommy and Sally may have done and mistreated it to you, but you know what? In light of the trip you're about to go on, it doesn't matter, and that's, that's the truth in light of Christ's coming. In light of the fact that we are ready to go to heaven itself, we're ready for Christ to turn the doorknob and walk in, it doesn't matter. We must overlook, we must overcome. This is strength. That's what James means. Establish your hearts. Establish your strength in this. 
Brothers and sisters, Christ's hand rests on the doorknob. Live like it. That's James' message. His hand is turning it. We're in the room. You can see the other side of the knob twisting. That's how close it is. That's how near it is in that sense. Live in that truth. Strengthen your hearts. Be patient. This is living the gospel. This is living for Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we see the truth of the gospel. We see what it means. And we are to be patient in our outlook on life. We are to be like a farmer that awaits the production of the crop, trusting in your providence and your faithfulness. We are to be, as we have talked about this morning, like patient children in the nursery awaiting our parent who we know is right there. We pray that you would help us do this. In the difficulty of our life, we so often fail. And yet we also see at times when we succeed. We thank you for the times in which we do see our patience grow. Where we do see the the chains that bind us to this earth broken and loosened. And we direct our gaze to the coming, to this amazing trip, to this amazing vacation that doesn't end is, is heaven itself. Let those times increase. May we live with patience in all things. May we live as well with patience towards each other, towards our loved ones, that we would not lash out, that we would not grumble, we would not be impatient to those around us, we would not use the difficulties of this life as an excuse in that way. We need your Spirit to do this. It is out of our possibility, out of our strength. And so we direct it to you who has promised that those who have asked these things in your name, you give it, for it is good and pleasing in your sight. We pray this to you, our great God. Amen.